Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. The night before I met my wife on top of a mountain in Colorado, I was camping under the most magnificent stars my little Missouri eyes could possibly comprehend. We were camping in a mountain valley where the stars were spread out overhead like a tablecloth. I mean, they felt so close, so beautiful, that we opted to leave our tent flap open as we fell asleep so we could watch them. As some of you may be thinking, yes, we didn't stop to consider the hoarfrost. I mean, the closest thing to a million shining orbs I had ever seen up until that point was a field full of a million lightning bugs in the Ozark Mountains of southern Missouri. And reminiscing about it, I mean, it feels like something straight out of the movie Avatar. It was its own kind of beautiful. Interestingly enough, the stars of Colorado and lightning bugs of Missouri both depend on one unpolluted environment to be beautiful. Unlike most things I talk about on this show, it has nothing to do with soil health, water retention, mineral cycling, fire, or grazing patterns. I'm talking about a dark night sky. It's really hard for us to imagine just how bright night skies were 200 years ago. Van Gogh couldn't paint his famous starry night sky over St. Remy in France today if he tried. There's too much light pollution now. Before the advent of the power grid, one of the few ways to get artificial light at night was by lighting a fire. I mean, you'd have to plant ahead, cut wood, let it season, and then finally burn it. In this scenario, there's no such thing as accidentally leaving the lights on. Making light is a very conscious act, and it's one only done if absolutely necessary. And rather than wood-burning fires, at one point gas streetlights provided nighttime light to major cities like New York and London. But even 150 years ago, there was an understanding that if the night sky was clear and a bright moon was shining, the gas lights would be turned off. But with the advent of the power grid and a need to dispose of excess energy that was generated during the day, the city's streetlight burning all hours of the night, clear or not, has become commonplace. I mean, even invisible. I need to tell you a quick story about New York City in the summer of 1977. I think about it probably every couple months. It just goes to show how much we are capable of changing our land, even accidentally. New York City has been hit by several major blackouts in the last 60 years. But in 1977, the mother of all blackouts darkened the city for 25 hours from July 13th to 14th. It started when a lightning strike hit a power plant in upstate New York, 
instantly, every borough in New York City went dark. Joe Rao was living in the Bronx at the time. He was a hobby astronomer who kept a diary of what happened that night, and the strike occurred about 9.30 p.m. Even during the summer, this is nighttime, but normally light pollution kept him from observing the night skies. All of a sudden, the stars came out. What? I mean, imagine for a second that you're watching the Mets and the Cubs during the sixth inning on your vacuum-powered TV set, and then everything goes black. You walk outside, and the streets are dark. The subway stopped. The next day, Wall Street had to close. I mean, everything we associate with New York City just grinds to a halt. Restaurants bring out candles, and looters take to the streets, and you can see the stars. So, due to his hobby, Joe Rao just happened to have a 4.25-inch reflecting telescope in his apartment. What he says next is so incredible, I just want to quote him directly. He wrote in his journal, By 11.35 p.m., I could perceive the Milky Way through a scattered layer of clouds. The best view came after 2.15 a.m., when it stretched from Cassiopeia to Northern Aquila, complete with dark rifts and the Cygnus coal sack. The 5.4-magnitude star 24 Volcape was readily seen without binoculars, as was the great Andromeda Galaxy and viewed a host of deep sky objects I would normally never attempt to look for from my home. Although the dazzling lights of New York City were shut off three times between 1965 and 2003, a dark country sky only showed itself for a few precious hours on that very special night in 1977. I moved out of the Bronx in 1984. I lived there almost 20 years, but aside from that uniquely special night in July of 1977, I never again saw the Milky Way from my house. That story sparks wonder in me. I mean, I think it perfectly illustrates how light pollution is probably the most promising pollution of all. Unlike CO2, it doesn't stay in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. Unlike nuclear contamination, it doesn't make environments uninhabitable and have half-lives of 10,000 years. It can be turned off with a single switch, almost as if it was never there in the first place. I first learned about light pollution on a national park road trip my wife and I took before we moved to Missouri to become farmers. We were at the Great Sand Dunes National Park in southeastern Colorado attending an evening ranger talk. Just so you know, if you get the chance to camp at a national park, it might be some of the darkest night sky you'll ever experience. Some of the worst consequences of artificial lights are the death of birds and the disruption of mating patterns. Many species of birds use the night sky to aid in navigation. For birds that migrate at night, they can be mistakenly drawn toward the brightness of city lights only to collide with tall, illuminated buildings. Literally millions of birds die sad, anonymous, and totally preventable deaths by flying into illuminated buildings. It's one of those tragedies that are so pervasive, they're rendered effectively invisible. I mean, how many times have you walked by a dead bird on the sidewalk without thinking anything of it? I mean, I know I have. I haven't once stopped to consider how artificial lights could have drawn that bird off its natural night migration and led to a totally preventable death. Baby sea turtles use the bright horizon over the ocean to find the sea, and they can be drawn off course by artificial lights. Thousands of baby sea turtles die this way every year. They start to crawl toward the artificial lights, and they end up being eaten by raccoons or flattened on a city street. The millions of lightning bugs I once saw under that dark Missouri sky Don't come out when there's a bright ambient light nearby. Even a natural full moon on a cloudless night is enough to disrupt their mating patterns. 
And we don't know for sure yet, but with the increasing proliferation of artificial lighting, it seems likely that fewer and fewer lightning bugs reproduce every year. All this leads to the obvious question, why do we need this much light? Short answer is we don't. Experts estimate that up to one-third of our residential energy use is wasted on unshielded or poorly aimed outdoor lights. That's about 4.33% of our national energy budget, or about $3 billion. $3 billion, lunatics! We could help solve world hunger by efficiently using our outdoor lighting. What a concept. Once again, the best part of light pollution, if there is any, is just how easy it is to reverse. It just involves turning off unshielded outdoor lights or converting them to properly shielded ones. That simple act means you can be saving birds, preserving lightning bug mating rituals, and ensuring that your kids get to experience the Milky Way. Right now, we are building a house on a street that has an almost completely dark sky. There's only three lights on our neighbor's homes that are disrupting this, and our local power company has a deal where they'll put a light on a power pole for free, and they'll come out to change the bulb whenever it burns out. The catch is that these are totally unshielded lights, so we understand why our neighbors have them. And I'm fully intending to build a coalition with our neighbors to protect a completely dark sky. I mean, I want to respect their right to feel safe and secure in their own homes. So it will probably mean I'll volunteer funds out of my own pocketbook to add motion sensors or proper shielding to their existing lights. And hopefully we'll call the power company to take down the old lights. But there are events happening in our skies that are completely out of our control. I mean, cue the satellites. You may have heard about all the satellites being launched to bring the internet to every corner of the Earth, right? So there's Amazon, there's Facebook and SpaceX, and they're all launching satellites into low Earth orbit. And these have already been detected by hobby astronomers just using their unaided eyes. In the last 60 years, we've put 15,000 satellites into low Earth orbit. In the next five, we're going to quintuple that to 75,000. The night sky across the world may never be the same. Fortunately for us, there's an organization dedicated to protecting the night sky called the International Dark Sky Association. It's been meeting with the companies like SpaceX for the purpose of responsibly stewarding the night sky for generations to come. Some policy proposals include painting the Earth side of low Earth orbit satellites black to decrease their reflectivity. If you want to find more information on how you can help protect the night sky where you live, check out their website at darksky.org. You'll see some absolutely gorgeous pictures of night skies around the world, as well as a bunch of helpful information to help you get you started on your stewardship journey. And that's all for now. Tune in for next time, won't you? Oh, woof! Which one are you? I created lots of extra content for you on my Patreon page if you want a deeper dive into my life and the world of regenerative agriculture. I need your support to keep doing this. Depending on how much you want to give, you might either be a brood of hens, guard pups, a flock of sheep, or a herd of cows. Personally, I'm a sticker fanatic. I have a Hydro Flask water bottle on display in my home covered with about 100 stickers from every corner of Colorado. It's one of my most prized possessions. I created a special offer for my fellow sticker fanatics where you'll get a high quality sticker of the podcast logo in the mail if you pledge your support to me on Patreon. Put it on your water bottle, the back windshield, your laptop, a guitar case, or a street light if you're really feeling gutsy. I know it's only taken like six months for me to get it together, but it's been kind of busy here. My dairy cows definitely consumed most of my day 
and I just recently dried them off. I have so much time, I barely know what to do with myself. This podcast isn't a super slick production. It's just me in a dark basement in the wee hours of the morning. I need your financial support to keep producing this. If this show means anything to you, if you find some value in it, please consider donating. However you came to find this podcast, your support, any support would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you thoroughly enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous for the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets, means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Stay with me won't you?